Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm John Hare. And I'm Renee Hare. Each week we get together to talk about horses. One of our favorite things. And horsemanship. On this week's show, we talked to Bakersfield large animal veterinarian, Dr. John Tully. He's going to go over what it takes for basic horse ownership. Dr. Tully is one of our favorite people. We've been going to him for years. He does great dental work. All of our horse's teeth look really swell. And on today's show, he's going to talk about things like pre-purchase exams, feed and supplementation, worming, vaccinations, and what to do in an emergency. Right. But before we get to that, we wanted to bring you up to date on some of the projects that we've talked about in the past and give you an update on the things that have happened. Like, for example, our experience with extreme cowboy racing. Boy, was that challenging. (laughs) But it was very fun. We uh, competed in a couple of races. What was it? Four races of the year or three? I believe it was three. Mm -hmm. It was... January, which was freezing cold and windy. Yes. And April, which was really, really windy. And then May, which was a beautiful day. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That was Labor Day weekend. And Renee competed in the novice level. And I competed with Scratch in the intermediate level. Our first couple of races were pretty... uh, Exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Wild and wooly, maybe. Uh, At least they felt that way. They didn't look too bad on video, but they... Uh, yeah, you chronicled all of it. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the actual runs on our YouTube channel, but we'll just tell you, uh, the update was the last race, which was in May, was in the state finals. It was. I was sitting in second place going into the state finals in the state standings. I think I had come in third in each individual competition, but because I had done more races, you accumulate points that way. And Renee was in... I was probably third, I think third. My problem was, oh, it wasn't a problem. I did the first race with your mare, Jessie, because she's just so so good for you and does everything you ask, and we thought that would make it a good experience for me. But alas, <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't perform quite as well for me as she does for you. When the second race came around, I I decided that I wanted to try Dusty out on it. I had retired. I was able to spend a lot more time riding and working with him. We had a a not great showing in that second race, but then I came home and worked harder. And then we had a much better final at at the state competition. All said and done, we ended up in third third place in the state standings and I got second place in the state competition. That's right. So very happy with that. It was a challenging experience and I learned a lot from it. You had a a couple of very good runs with Dusty there. He did most of those uh, obstacles very well. He did, did not get over that water obstacle. I told John we need to build a water box. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) One more thing for my honeydew. That's right. But many of the obstacles that Dusty had struggled with in the first couple of runs, you really came back and did well, like the Cowboy Curtain. Yes. Uh, That was a a big improvement there. And our bridge. And the mailbox, where you had to step into the mailbox. He didn't even do that the first time. Did not. Yeah. So you guys did you did really well. You were a great coach for those four weeks we had to practice. Well, thank you. You're a good (laughs) student. (laughs) And then with Scratch, first three or four runs that we had done at the arena, with all the the official 
extreme cowboy races in California were at the Shades of Gold Ranch. And each one we had gone in and you start the race with a free ride at a canter around the arena. And every time we started that, Scratch just got all amped up. And then I struggled with the rest of the course most of the time trying to calm him back down. Because I was in second place and didn't really have a chance to catch the leader, she was she was way ahead. God awful better than we were. <laughs> <laughs> we chose to trot the free ride. Uh, and I think that that really helped scratch kind of, I used it as a training run, which is, I thought a good investment for the entry fee, but, <laughs> but, it, and it was really tough to do, uh, to force myself not to compete. But I th- thought that scratch really needed that experience to go in there and know that we had a job to do and get the job done without going, uh, crazy. So we trotted the entire course. We did most of the obstacles exactly the way we wanted to. He did not go over that swinging bridge, even though we I had actually built the bridge. So I'm not sure building water box for Dusty is going to help him because... Scratch- well, you built a ramp. The part that, that Scratch didn't want to go over was the swinging part, and you can't build one of those. No. That I'm, was 15 feet long. That's right. No, you built the ramp, and he did the ramp. Part. Part of it. <laughs> <laughs> And fortunately, Dusty didn't even have to do the whole swinging bridge thing. <laughs> and uh, the other thing is I'm going to have to improve on my jumping abilities if I'm going to continue something like that because my jumping style leaves very much to be desired. It's just kind of uh, hang on and... Hope for the best. And hope for the best. <laughs> just get over the jump. And we had to jump uh, 55-gallon barrels, which were not that high, but... Covered with a piece of astroturf that kept blowing off <laughs> in the wind or getting dragged off by somebody's hoof. <laughs> and it doesn't seem like there's going to be um, any more extreme cowboy races here in California. The next one, I think, might be a regional finals or the national finals that happen in Texas. And we're not going to go to those. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We're going we're gonna to try and experience... Some other fun things to do. That's right. And so now we'll get to, uh, this is an interview that I did with Dr. Tolley back in 2015. The information today about feed and nutrition and vaccinations, I think is really worthwhile. If you're new to horse ownership, I think it's really going to help you out. Dr. Tolley explains his philosophy very clearly. And if you're new to horsemanship, this is going to give you a lot of good information on what you need to do, what you need to know what kind of relationship you can build with your veterinarian so that you'll have a better relationship with your horse and actually save money in the long run. And it's a good refresher, even if you've been in horses for a while, just to hear some of these things again. And now, Dr. John Tully on the Woe Podcast. We're talking with uh, Dr. John Tully of Bakersfield Large Animal Veterinary Hospital. Thanks for coming on the Woe Podcast, John. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. What I wanted to, to talk to you about today, Dr. Tully, is a number of different things that people can expect when they get a horse and what they have to do as far as veterinary care goes. But before we get started in that, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been a vet? Where you grew up? And do you have horses? Um, I grew up in Escondido, northern San Diego County, and went to Arizona when I was 18. I went to the University of Arizona there. Uh, I stayed in Arizona, worked for the University 
University of Arizona for a year for that ver their veterinary science department. Uh, and then I went back home to Escondido, worked for a vet there. It took me a little longer than some to get into veterinary school. So I teched for an equine large animal vet in Escondido, uh, the late, great Dan Evans. Uh, I was accepted to the University of California at Davis. I was there for four years and graduated in 1983 and came to Bakersfield in July of 1983. Went to work for Bakersfield Vet Inc. Large Animal, and I've been there ever since. I bought into that practice uh, about six years after I started, and uh, I'm a part owner in Bakersfield Vet Hospital, and I manage the large animal practice. That's great. And Bakersfield Vet is uh, our veterinary hospital. You guys take <clears throat> care of our two horses, Dusty and Jesse, so we appreciate you for that and uh, for coming down today. One of the first things that I think people who are looking to buy a horse is a pre-purchase exam. Is one really necessary in all cases? I mean, if someone's going to get a, a horse for their kid, do they really need to, to vet that horse out? Or, uh, what's your opinion on pre-purchase exams? Well, I think they're very useful, and it, and it certainly depends on what kind of horseman you are. But in my house, we get a horse, and he's not leaving forever. You know, they, they, they're family animals, and they stay till they, they need to go. Uh, and so sometimes it doesn't matter so much what the purchase price of the horse is. Uh, there's, there can be nothing more expensive sometimes than a free horse. Right. And so a pre-purchase exam can really be useful in telling you, I think, somewhat about the temperament of the horse, although I certainly don't ride them, but I'm underneath a lot of them, and I can tell you kind of what their general attitude is. And then all the health problems that I think they might have, uh, eyes, teeth, heart, lungs, uh, skin problems, feet problems, and then we do a pretty good orthopedic exam. So, you know, I try not to make it a you buy this horse or you don't buy this horse deal. I try to inform uh, the buyer or the receiver of that horse uh, everything that I can find out about it so they can make an informed decision of whether they want to take this horse home. Now, certainly when we're talking about <clears throat> $20,000 barrel horses, uh, Pre-purchase exams can be quite expensive, and people really want to do a fine-tuned orthopedic exam on that horse, and so we may be doing a physical exam, or in addition to radiographs, sometimes we scope those horses, we can do blood work, I mean, we can do a 1000 or $1,200 exam on expensive horses where people are investing a lot of money and or a lot of time into a great world-class athlete. But on the other hand, you know, a standard pre-purchase exam runs $350, somewhere around that. And I think that can be really useful even on a free horse that's going to be a pet. So you know what you're getting into because uh, taking care of horses with significant problems can be quite expensive and it can right. be painful. I mean, difficult and painful to deal with. And, and most of us aren't of the ilk that we can turn them over tomorrow and go get another one. And you bring up a good point, just the... The fact that handling that horse, putting him in a trailer, taking him to the vet, or having the vet come out and having the vet go through pull prod, you're going to find out real quick the temperament of that horse, and if he's got any ouchy spots, you're going to you're going to find that. Right. If I can't pick up his back feet, then you probably really can't pick up his back feet. You right. know what I mean? And we exactly. should know that. Now you may say, John, I'm getting this horse anyway, and that's that's great. But at least you know that you've got a temperamental problem or a behavior problem, and then that's where you need to focus some of your time 
or training next or send him out to somebody who knows how to do that. Now, you mentioned something about the high dollar horses. You would scope them. What does a scope tell you? Oh, we're looking at upper airway quality. So one of the limiting factors on racehorses, barrel horses, can be upper airway problems. And so on speed horses, uh, occasionally dressage horses where they set them up in a, in a vertical headset, mm-hmm. uh, airway diameter and airway problems can be an issue. And so on, on expensive horses that are going to be world-class athletes, sometimes we're looking at lots of things besides just uh, radiographs. And because we live in the San Joaquin Valley that's kind of known for poor air quality, do you notice any particular problems to, due to this general area? I occasionally do. I think those problems are a lot worse back east. I talked to my colleagues from Boston and Chicago where they have horses all winter locked up in barns full of moldy, dusty hay, and they tend to have a lot more allergic lung problems than we do here, even with our less than stellar air quality. But on occasion in the summer, I do see horses with with allergic lung problems. I'll occasionally scope those horses to rule out something else, but it tends to be less upper airway and more lung. Now, in California, many people do feed alfalfa. I know it's not that way in all parts of the country. With the drought in our area, alfalfa is very expensive. What do you feed your horses? Well, I'm kind of lucky. I have a a little ranch up at 3,000 feet in the Sierra foothills, and so for the most part, I feed them on native grasses. Uh, I supplement them with a product to balance uh, grass hay to what I think their mineral and vitamin requirements are. And then I supplement them with alfalfa pellets Mm -hmm. uh, made by Arizona Feeds that I get from Costco. Uh, The reason I do that is because my wife goes to Costco twice a month. (laughs) (laughs) And I can put those pellets in my sea train and lock them up and the mice and the rats don't eat them. You know, storing hay in my environment is a little bit difficult. I certainly, though, am a, a proponent of quality alfalfa hay in its many forms, and, and I'm, uh, I think that that is a, an excellent feed for California horses, and, and we can work with it for almost all instance, instances. I've heard people talk that alfalfa is sometimes too rich, so you don't share that opinion. Well, alfalfa is, is calorically dense, so that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what kind of horse you're feeding. But it is calorically dense. It is high in protein. Uh, it is high in calcium. It is pretty good on vitamins and minerals, with some exceptions. And so for 90%, in my opinion, for 90% of the horses in California, it's a, a very good basic feed. And other options are kind of hard to come by. Right. Uh, oat hay... Uh, is really hard to find in poor rain years because most of that is dry farmed. Uh, real good grass hay all has to be imported from Oregon, Central Oregon for the most part. We grow some de- decent Bermuda hay in this valley, although it tends to be a little expensive for the uh, the nutrient profile it has, but that certainly is an option. But unlike some parts of the country where you can buy really quality pasture grass hay inexpensively, we don't get that. And, and you know, grass hays can be $22 a bale here, right. which is a third the energy, a third the mineral content of alfalfa hay for twice the price. And so it doesn't pencil out very well for most of my clients. I, I'm pretty happy with alfalfa hay. I know there's a tremendous 
feeling that alfalfa can be a problem, most, mostly by Eastern nutritionists, and I, I think that's overplayed. Occasionally, the high protein in alfalfa can be a problem with some of our seriously geriatric horses, uh, so there are alternatives for that, but most horses between the ages of birth and 20-something, late 20s, do pretty well with alfalfa hay. It can be a problem on the easy keepers in the sense that if I put them on a diet with alfalfa hay, they go through their six pounds of alfalfa hay pretty fast and start eating fences. And so, I mean, that can be a problem, and we do occasionally look for alternatives. But but I, I, I can work with alfalfa hay in almost every uh, case and, and, and find a way to get it get it used. Now, in the Central Valley, we'll get uh, six, even sometimes more cuttings out of the year. Do you have a recommendation on which cutting to select from? I think these guys get 11 cuttings. I, do, I think they do. <laughs> they, get, they get a lot of alfalfa hay per acre in this valley. It's right. beautiful stuff. Well, first cutting alfalfa hay and second to some degree is very high in protein. I don't know if that hurts our horses particularly, but we tend to get outbid by the dairies who are trying to buy protein in that sense, and so I think that hay should probably go to them. Also, first and second cutting alfalfa hay has the potential to have some weed contaminants in it that might get us in some problems toxicology-wise. So common groundsel is a good example of that that can be in first and second cutting alfalfa hay, and if baled in hay and fed to horses over a significant period of time can cause liver cirrhosis. And so I think third cutting on, and at Bakersfield Vet Hospital, I tend to buy hay in August, you know, mm-hmm. so that's fifth, sixth cutting. Uh, the protein's a little lower, the palatability's a little lower, but it's good quality stuff, and the price by then has come down to uh, a reasonable dull roar uh, as compared to earlier in the year. So if you're lucky enough to have the funds to, to buy hay for a year, probably uh, late July, August, start of September is a pretty reasonable time to do that. And then in our area, I've often been concerned because I do buy about seven months of hay at a time. How long is it good for? Well, at Bakersfield Vet, we, we assume it's good for a year. Okay. I think that all the nutrients in alfalfa hay hold pretty well with the exception probably of vitamin E and vitamin A. Uh, on a practical basis, I'm not sure I've ever seen evidence of deficiency of that. But when I'm dealing with a horse that I think, a neurological horse or a horse that I think vitamin E supplementation is real important, I don't count on the vitamin E tested in that hay to, to be there by the end of a significant period of time, probably past 45 days, and I will supplement with vitamin E. And then just keeping it protected from dust and moisture is probably... Well, moisture is the biggest thing. The big, yes. biggest thing. But, in it, but our alfalfa hay, um, Dr. Filkins, my senior partner, and I have analyzed it in every year now for the 30 years I've been there. Really? You know, our Central Valley alfalfa hay is a very good product, but it is reliably deficient in selenium, copper, zinc, manganese, vitamin E usually, at least if it's been stored very long. And it's low in phosphorus as compared to its calcium content. So when it comes to reproduction in horses and raising quality babies, we found a long time ago 
that we, we, we produced a lot better quality babies if we supplemented those broodmares with those products to balance the alfalfa hay. Now, you don't have to have a big volume to do that. So our, our broodmare ration is a pound a day, and it supplies those minerals that are deficient, and it very well balances the alfalfa hay. And it really does make a difference when you're raising uh, fast-growing babies, uh, racehorse babies, thoroughbred babies, warm blood babies, paint, show horse babies. The, the incidence of problems is reduced significantly by supplementing their mothers with a product like that. But since then, I've, go, I've gone on, and, and, and I, I think that probably every horse in my practice should have that same supplement. Uh, at a low volume once a day to to balance that alfalfa hay so that over a lifetime as we get into older horses that they've had enough selenium, enough copper, enough phosphorus uh, through their lifetime so that they don't run into problems. Now this can be particularly a problem with horses with some genetic inherited problems. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the muscle inherited horses need a lot more selenium than average but everybody here is going to be deficient over time, and I think at least providing the basics with a inexpensive supplement to our alfalfa hay is a good idea. If this was grass hay country, I would come up with a supplement for grass hay the same. I mean, I, I, I just think that no hay is going to be perfect balancer. And then when you use concentrated feeds to do that, if you read the labels on them, if you uh, just pick one, if, it, if the label says it takes uh, six pounds a day to feed to your bear, uh, rope horse, then it's going to take six pounds of that stuff a day to get the minerals in him to balance his hay. And if you feed some of these guys six pounds a, a day, either they get too fat or they buck you off. So, <laughs> um, you know, if you are supplementing to that degree uh, with a Purina product or an LMF product, then then that works. But you got to remember, you got to give label directions or they're going to be deficient in some of these microminerals. So now is your the product that you're talking about that you feed the brood mares or those is that a supplemental feed that has supplementation in it or is it just the supplementation that you maybe put over a, a small amount of well it has to get enough phosphorus to balance our our alfalfa hay which is high calcium you need at least a pound a day or they won't eat it. Gotcha. So I mean the, the the supplements that have you know five tablespoons are not going to balance at least our hay completely. You need you need bigger volumes because phosphorus is pretty sour, and they learn to like it pretty well. But you need some reasonable volume. You're not going to get all those minerals in in them in a in a four tablespoon serving of of anything, in my opinion. And then, are there other supplements that you recommend to horses? Uh, the the bone and joint supplements, for example, or biotin. I know biotin is a a big advertising supplement in magazines for hoof growth and stuff like that? I tend to be a pretty conservative nutritionist, to be honest with you, and I think we spend a lot of money on our horses uh, that might be, be better spent elsewhere, farrier care and dentistry, for example, than on, on expensive supplements. I, I think for the most part, if you come up with a pretty reasonable diet with hay, whatever kind you like as your basis and an appropriate supplement to balance that. Uh, and that shouldn't be expensive, uh, 50 cents a day. I think you can do pretty well unless you have some other problem. Right. And so when we start getting into disease states or geriatric horses or feet problems, you know, or individuals, then I'll, 
start recommending different diets or supplements. But for the standard, you know, 12-year-old ranch horse who's healthy and doing really well, uh, I don't think he needs a lot of other things, and, and I tend not to supplement. A lot of these supplements are pretty unproven, and I, you know, I took a year's worth of glucosamine chondroitin myself, didn't do anything for me, and I yeah. recently read that there's been four or five mega studies with that supplement in humans that show that it's not effective, and some many of those studies are showing that in horses as well, although they are much more expensive studies to do in the horse. But, but I think we need to be careful about unproven supplements. I don't have a problem with them, but they sure can be expensive, and horses are expensive enough anyway. I think we need to be a little selective about those things. So we've got a pre-purchase exam, then we've got the, the feed taken care of, and just to make sure that the feed's getting absorbed right, uh, worming is a is something that a horse owner is going to have to be concerned with. What's, what type of worming protocol do you recommend? Well, parasites can be a problem in horses. Uh, I think we're particularly lucky in, in the desert southwest and that we don't face nearly the parasite problems as they do in New Zealand and Kentucky and Florida, where they have high humidity, high heat conditions much of the year. Uh, parasite problems are much worse back there. That can be a problem sometimes because a lot of the parasite research that has been done has been done in Kentucky, it's been done in Florida, and then to try to, to interpret those findings to Arizona and California can be a little bit difficult. Uh, they, they are happy with 300 egg per gram counts of small strongyles in, in central Kentucky, and I, I raises my hackles and I start worrying about <laughs> sick horses when I see counts that high in Bakersfield. Right. So there is some interpretation to be done there. Uh, I, I think that the veterinary profession in general, though, has, has sort of migrated to the point where I think we should be running fecals uh, on these horses. Uh, Bakersfield Vet does hundreds of fecal samples a year looking for parasite levels in these horses. Uh, if we have high parasite levels on a fecal exam, then we certainly would make recommendations for uh, how to deworm that horse and come back and check him again in some reasonable six-week period of time. Uh, for the most part, day in and day out, the fecal samples on horses in my practice are very low or negative. Uh, in the case of that, then I recommend using the drug ivermectin mm -hmm. uh, in uh, October and April. Uh, remember that there are uh, insects and parasites out there that do not show up on fecal, fecal exams. Uh, that cause problems to our horses. So I don't think we can get away from worming in general. But twice a year with ivermectin right now is, is I think, a pretty standard recommendation and has worked quite well in the last five or six years for, for most of our clients. Uh, I do like to have a good look at horses that are come, being moved here from pasture country, uh, horses coming here from Texas, from Kentucky, from Florida, I think need to get a fecal exam uh, fairly quickly and be dewormed before they're put out, at least on a pasture situation with other horses, because they can be quite contaminated when they get here. When they can spread that through the And they can spread that onto um, an irrigated pasture in mm -hmm. Bakersfield and, and cause horses that are pretty naive to parasites to get into trouble pretty quickly. That is a problem sometimes in, in desert horses. Uh, I've seen it happen before where horses that have had very minimal Parasite problems have been wormed regularly by their owners, uh, go up into the mountains to a, 
old horse, old, old horse ranch and get a snoot full of them. And I had a beautiful two-year-old filly that I worked on, died of, of strongulosis one really? time. Went into a, an old cattle ranch, hadn't had any parasite control in 100 years, right on a creek with blue-green grass, and, and she, she got pretty sick. So uh, that can be a problem here in that we have pretty naive horses to parasites, and we put them in a, a highly contaminated environment, and they get a lot sicker than those horses who grew up there. Uh, but I think the, the idea that we have to deworm every horse uh, every two months, uh, which was how I was brought up, um, is probably uh, not appropriate at this point for several reasons. We, we have a tendency to be creating resistance in these parasites to the drugs we're using. We certainly want to avoid that. Uh, it's very difficult these days to worm uh, some of our goat herds because they are resistant to everything that we can use. So we want to avoid that in the horse. Um, already the benzimidol um, anathemenics uh, have some significant resistance, such as the drug Panicure or Safeguard. Uh, so we have to be careful with that. Uh, and we're probably just putting a lot of uh, chemicals in the environment and that we don't need to. And unfortunately, right now, I think part of the problem, as I see just as a shopper, is the worm medicine is, you know, Seven, seven to twelve dollars, and the fecal exam is is thirty. Is, what is it about thirty dollars to get a fecal flotation? Twenty eight dollars. Twenty eight bucks. Yeah. So it certainly ups your cost. Although if you figured that you're only worming the horse twice instead of six times, that that should maybe be a break even point. Yeah, and I what we do is uh, like our our dental program. We do it every other year. We check them just to kind of make sure we're on the right track. And if things change, then we'll check them more often. Other than that, we try to manage it that way. Okay. But I think we have to be careful because, you know, I've gone back to to Virginia. Uh, I, ha I had a really neat deal where one of the drug companies asked for my opinion about vaccines we use. And when I went back to Virginia and I met with veterinarians from all over the country. And it's amazing how much different environment plays a role in what we do. And the guys from Michigan and the guys from Florida and the guys from Texas and the guys from Virginia and I were all doing different things when it came to standard vaccine protocols, to parasite control programs. We lived in different environments. We had different clients and it made a, made a difference. And so when I'm making recommendations Right. I'm sort of talking California, Arizona, and I think the people in New Zealand better be talking to their vet and it, see what they're doing there because it may not be valid. Yeah, and that that probably is the better reason to do fecal egg counts right. because now you're actually looking and responding to what you have, and then you develop that prob you probably developed your protocol from doing that. Going if we're doing fecal egg counts and we're getting low counts, maybe we don't need to. To worm every other every right, other month, right. right? And I don't want to tell the person with six broodmares in central Kentucky right, exactly. how to set up her deworming program because it's not my turf, and I haven't grown up doing that there. So, and and a part of the, our program is not to to necessarily you know tell somebody exactly how to do something, but to to tell them how you developed your protocol and to kind of give them a comparison to show that there is this wide range of treatment protocols that 
that are available to them and that they should be talking to someone knowledgeable in their in their area that's familiar with their horse as well. Right. And, and so we have worming now. And what about the vaccination status in California? What do we recommend? What do we re- recommend on those grounds, Dr. Tully? Well, I think in California, uh, in, in at least this part of Central California, a bare minimum is tetanus, for sure. Tetanus is a lethal disease. We don't see it a lot, but it is not uncommon in unvaccinated horses. Uh, remarkably, the vaccine is is incredibly effective and probably fairly long-term. In my lifetime, I saw one horse contracted tetanus that had not been vaccinated for four years. Uh, Most of the horses I see with tetanus have never been vaccinated for tetanus. So, I mean, it's a long-lasting vaccine, but uh, it also is a pretty smooth and safe vaccine. So I think every horse should get a tetanus toxoid shot every year. I'll take a little aside here. There's two tetanus vaccines out there. One is tetanus toxoid, which mm-hmm. is a true vaccine for horses. The other is tetanus antitoxin. Tetanus antitoxin is a horse serum product that gives direct antibodies to your horse uh, in the face of the disease. Uh, and tetanus antitoxin is associated with a low but lethal incidence of uh, liver disease about six or eight weeks after a tetanus antitoxin shot to an adult horse. So I think we should be very careful about using that. And I do find instances where the feed store guy gives somebody a tetanus antitoxin and and they've gotten into trouble with that. So uh, we're talking, when we're talking every horse needs a tetanus shot every year, we're talking the tetanus toxoid vaccine. We also vaccinate horses for eastern and western encephalitis. Western encephalitis has a low incidence in Central California. Uh, that is a disease that also can affect people here. Uh, so we want to keep that uh, incidence as low as possible. Uh, I don't know that that's particularly high, although my, my partner, Dr. Filkins, talks about seeing a few cases in his time. I'm not sure I have ever diagnosed it here, but it sort of tends to come with the others. And then West Nile virus, uh, again, can be a lethal disease. It can be a pretty serious disease. We certainly saw uh, way too many cases uh, seven years ago when it came to California. Uh, Again, that's a pretty long-lasting vaccine. I haven't seen a case in a horse that had had a vaccine within three years, let's put it that way. Uh, But again, a West Nile shot every year is appropriate. So at a minimal in Central California, I would give a horse a tetanus, Eastern Western encephalitis, and West Nile vaccine. And some of our horses, that's all they get. Mm-hmm. Um, so on my geriatric horses, the guys that are in their mid-20s and older, uh, their risk of other diseases gets to be pretty low. They have a lot of native immunity. Their risk of having reactions to some of those vaccines starts going up. And so a lot of my uh, older horses, they get a sleeping sickness tetanus shot once a year. In addition to that, we vaccinate for influenza and herpes, which we call rhinopneumonitis. Uh, those are not tend to be lethal diseases, uh, but they certainly can make your horse pretty sick and keep you away from the show ring for two, three, four weeks sometimes. Uh, so babies should get that, uh, uh, both these vaccines twice when they're six and seven months old. The flu rhino shot, I think we don't give enough to young horses, I would say at least twice a year uh, through their 10th year. 
uh, depending on their exposure. And then once a year through their 20th year might be my recommendation, although that's going to vary a lot. When you say depending on their exposure, is that exposure to other horses? Exposure to other horses. So if they're around other horses, they'll... they'll... So this is the kind of thing that three-year-olds pick up in training. Right. Four-year-olds pick up at the ropings. Got it. You know, six-year-olds pick up at the bail races. 22-year-olds in your backyard that don't go anywhere have a lot of immunity and their exposure is low. And if every time you give that vaccine, they are off for two days and limp in the left hind where I gave the shot, then then I start thinking maybe we don't need to right. we don't need to do fluffy anymore with that shot because you know the the value of the vaccine drops and the consequences start going up. Especially on those guys that been show horses for a long time, got two shots a year, you know, for eighteen years, they tend to start reacting more to that vaccine. In addition to that, we vaccinate horses for rabies. Now, I'm going to get in trouble with the the national people here. I've never seen a case of rabies in a horse in Kern County. Uh, I do not make that part of my standard uh, vaccine program. Uh, Certainly people that live up in the hills often request that, and I certainly don't have a problem with it. Uh, The American Association of Equine Practitioners considers that one of the core vaccines. Certainly back east where they have a lot of raccoon rabies, it should be, Mm -hmm. uh, in in much of the eastern and northeastern United States. Again, it's sort of a local thing, uh, and maybe I'm too cost-conscious for my clients, more cost-conscious than I should be. But for valley horses, again, I've not seen a a rabbit horse in this practice, and, and I don't make that a, a, a standard protocol. Uh, another disease we vaccinate for is streptococcus equi or strangles. Uh, strangles can be a devastating disease uh, and make uh, any horse that's not immune to it that gets it quite ill. Uh, the death rate may be down around 2%, and we've got some better vaccines, uh, better antibiotics than we used to. It is a bacterial disease uh, to help treat those horses. But I'm pretty strident that all the babies in this practice get that vaccine twice uh, to start and then once a year. Again, sort of through their exposure period of six, seven, eight years of age. Uh, at that point, I usually stop and sort of know that I have a pretty vaccinated horse. And if strangles pops up in, in this vicinity, we can go back and vaccinate that horse and quickly have a reasonable immunity. Again, location is everything. Uh, with our hot, dry summers, strep equi or strangles is an epidemic disease in this valley, uh, not an endemic disease. Uh, so the recommendations in Paso Robles are certainly down in, in coastal San Diego County, where I grew up was a different thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, every yearling got strangles every year really? you know and in bakersfield we can run 10 years without seeing it but oh. that does sort of leave us open then at 10 years we've developed a lot of uh, horses that don't have immunity and it's hard to sell a vaccine for a disease people have never seen right and so when it comes around it can be especially on a wet foggy year it can be a problem here so i like to do all my babies and keep them uh, vaccinated for for strep equi or strangles you know, until probably until they start pushing their teens. There are other vaccines we can give horses, but that that aren't probably standard protocol in this practice, and often for diseases that aren't common here. We just have a new vaccine available to us uh, last week. 
uh, for Carinobacterium uh, pseudotuberculosis or pigeon fever. Uh, this is a brand new uh, temporarily licensed vaccine. I'm not sure how to incorporate that in our practice. That is a pretty rare disease, although it can be serious. We do have a high incidence, though, in the foothill communities of Fraser Park, Tehachapi, uh, Twin Oaks, Walker Basin, oh. Lake Isabella, probably Glenville, Porterville. And so I certainly would suggest, and I just did this last week, that somebody buy in a, a valley four-year-old uh, before she takes it up uh, to Tehachapi, should, we should probably vaccinate that horse because I'd be pretty likely uh, that that horse in five years in Tehachapi is probably going to get pigeon fever. As far as the rest of them go as a blanket vaccine, I, I need to have a little more experience with it okay. uh, before I could come up with a, a, an honest recommendation for, for uh, our valley horses here. What are most people calling you on an emergency basis for? What are some of the conditions that a horse can get himself into that maybe with a little bit of care the owner could have perhaps prevented or saved a little money by taking an ounce of prevention and, and being able to, to kind of circumvent a problem? Well, our, our probably our number one serious emergency is colic. That's a little hard to say. I, I think colic is very much a, a disease imposed on horses by our management. Uh, and when we take horses that are or used to be pretty free-ranging animals that ate a little bit all day long, that had access to clean water, who moved miles every day, the incidence of colic was, and, and in those kind of horses, is quite a bit lower. Okay, And when we start confining horses to 20 by 12 paddocks, feed them large amounts of even appropriate hay twice a day, we up our incidence of colic significantly. So colic is, is to some degree, and these numbers are pretty low, but it is some degree uh, influenced by amount of exercise a horse has and, and amount of turnout time they have by feeding and horses can get pretty fussy and, I think, increase their incidence of colic by irregular feeding and by not sticking with the same program every every day. It used to be said that colic was very influenced by parasitism. Uh, how much that is true in this practice is a little hard to say, but certainly maintaining a good dewormingine program is important. Uh, I think adequate amounts of clean, reasonably cool, fresh water is extremely important. I see impacted horses here every summer, and I'm quite sure a lot of them are, are sick because they were trying to suck down 25 gallons of water a day through a black bowl okay. automatic water that's out in the sun and right. gets to be 160 degrees pretty fast. And so, you know, I would much prefer to see horses fed, uh, offered water out of uh, trash cans, if nothing else, filled every day with water and dumped on a every other day basis at least. So... You know, those horses have a requirement of water of 25 gallons a day when it's right. 105 here. And I don't think a lot of them get it, and a lot of them colic pretty fast from that. So being consistent about your horsemanship and your feeding program, deworming, adequate turnout and exercise, uh, all can go to reduce the incidence of colic uh, quite a bit. And, and when I see horses that are 
living in pastures, living out in the country, I think the incidence of colic is quite a bit lower. Now, that's not always avoidable in our modern uh, cities, but um, you know, it tends to be true. I think we impose a lot of colic on horses. I've heard a lot of my friends and neighbors talk about sand colic, and there seems to be a lot of sand you know, on the ground, people feeding off the ground. Some people say that's natural for the horse to eat off the ground, but they're eating grass off the ground, and now they've, they're intaking sand. Can that be a problem? Yeah, I probably see 120 sanded horses, colicky sanded horses a year. So the incidence is very high here. Uh, the whole practice area, for the most part, is one natural uh, riverbed. Right. And so when we feed alfalfa hay, and again, I, as, as we spoke earlier, I like alfalfa hay as a nutrient source for horses. But when we feed alfalfa hay in this valley, such that the horses can flip it out of the feeder onto the ground and then spend all day licking up every little leaf of alfalfa <laughs> hay. Every time they lick a leaf of alfalfa hay off the ground, they get five grains of sand, which sediment out in their colon. Mm -hmm. And over time, it can cause an irritant colitis or an impaction or both. And those can be pretty serious colics. And we've seen horses come in with, with 30 and 40 pounds of sand in the, their left ventral colon. So it can be hard to get them better, and they don't get better with, with one trip. Does fiber um, help that? I think so, but the biggest thing to help that is not, not feed them alfalfa hay on the ground. Right. Now, you were very right. Horses would much rather eat with their head at floor level. Right. And so putting feeders on the wall is pretty useless because they've got nothing to do all day but figure out how to get that hay where they want it, which is on the ground. So I don't recommend that. I prefer several ways. One is to put them in big feeders that are big enough that the horse is happy eating out of that feeder and have the bottom of that feeder at ground level. Uh, the second is to put mats or poured concrete you know, in a 10 by 10 square around your horse so that when he flips the hay out on the ground, he's licking it off reasonably, cl reasonably clean concrete or reasonably clean mats or boards or whatever works for you. And then you go sweep that off every third day so that right. he's not, as he walks sand back up on it, he's not eating the fines off the sand. So those are a couple options. Uh, we use the the drug or the supplement called psyllium, P-S-Y-L-L-I-U-M. Psyllium uh, comes in several different brands. Equi-Aid is one that's very popular here to remove sand from sanded horses. But it's not reliable, and they can eat sand faster than psyllium can get it out of them. So a mm -hmm. horse where he's in a situation where he is eating uh, sand off the ground, then, then I recommend... Uh, uh, a dose of psyllium seven days a month. Psyllium is not an inexpensive product. Uh, it's probably better if we devise a system so we're not putting that horse at risk uh, in the first right. place because I've had very sanded horses come in and I put them on psyllium for 30 days and they come back and they're not very much less, less sanded. So uh, it doesn't work as well as I, I wish that it wish that it would. So I think sand is a is a significant cause of problem. Probably maybe a third of the colics I see are sanded horses here, and most of those are present preventable. My option, favorite option for treating these horses is to take alfalfa hay and make cubes out of it and put them in any feeder the horse likes 
And then he eats the alfalfa cubes out of the feeder, licks the feeder clean, and then he's done. And he's got to walk around and look at the birds the rest of the day. Right. Uh, there so, are no little pieces to pick so, off the ground. Right. So my solution in alfalfa country is rather than feed flaked hay, uh, to feed cubed cubed hay. Uh, that was a lot easier to get done when Shafter Hay and Cube was working out right. on the west side and provided very quality product for many years. Uh, it's a little harder to get those cubes now, although we have a, a good source from Woodland, California. It ups your cost, but the waste goes way down. Uh, and I think, you know, one one serious colic at my hospital for four days is easily a $1,400 vet bill. And so you can buy a lot of hay cubes with $1,400. But you can, yeah. It's kind of surprised me how that, I wasn't really sure where this was going, but you really have to be aware of where you are in the country or in the world where your horses are kept and as to how you're going to treat them and formulate a a wellness program for your horse. And then I, I wanted to bring up the dental program. And that's one thing that I think a lot of people neglect if you've got time. Sure. And I just kind of run through what a good dental protocol might be for your horse. Well, I think horses' hypsodont teeth are, are just fascinating. I, the longer I've been doing this, the more thrill I get out of equine dentistry. Uh, it's just one of those things that, that really took hold of the artistic part of me, and I very much enjoyed. I think we need to remember that horses' teeth, uh, when they're six years old, for say, uh, are three inches long, and that tooth, like a mechanical pencil, comes down to his mouth three-eighths of an inch a year, uh, exposing hard new uh, enamel that can be used to grind the heavy food they eat. So these guys are really made to have a 35-year lifespan and have teeth that last that long. But remember, you know, that beautiful face is nothing but a box to hold teeth. And over the millennium, <laughs> if we've picked pretty-headed horses, we've often picked for bad bites. And bad bites means parts of teeth are not covered by the opposite tooth, and that leaves a spot for us to grow enamel spikes and hooks and, and interesting problems. I see a fair number of Mustang horses come into my practice, and, and almost to the last one, barring an injury, they have really beautiful teeth and don't need a lot of dentistry because oh. nobody select them for, selected them for beauty, and yeah. they've selected themselves for good bites because it's important to their longevity. So as we pick different shaped faces, uh, we pick bad bites, and bad bites set them up for having problems. So I think these horses uh, should be evaluated by a veterinarian, I'm kind of strong about that, once a year, and see how his teeth are wearing, if there's any sharp points or irregularities or hooks or spurs or ramps or waves that are getting going, and to, to go in and correct those as needed. There are certainly horses that don't need a, a major dental correction every year. Uh, some of them don't need one every third year. Uh, most of them probably, even the best bites, uh, need to be looked at, seriously looked at, you know, on a two- or three-year basis. But I, I at least put my hand in their mouth every year if I can and kind of get an assessment. And if there's any question, then I sedate the horse and go look and, and make a correction if it's necessary. 
We also need to remember as these horses start getting painful because they are getting hooks and irregularities in their teeth, they stop chewing normally, which is a big side-to-side swing of that lower jaw. They start chewing more up and down. As they chew more up and down, then they start changing the forces on the teeth and they start getting waves there that weren't there before. So part of doing dentistry on horses, even if they're not devastatingly bad, is to keep that horse comfortable in chewing normally so he doesn't start making his teeth look like a a bad washboard road in Kern County driven by the oil field (laughs) trucks. And so when he comes in at 25, I can't help him anymore because he's destroyed his teeth because he's been chewing abnormally for so long. So when you start doing corrections on these horses at four and six and eight and 10, it's a lot more likely that he'll have a decent set of teeth when he's your loved pet at 26. Well, this has been a great hour, Dr. Tully. I appreciate you coming by and talking to my audience and thanks for being on the World Podcast. Okay. I enjoyed the invite. (laughs) Thank you. That'll do it for this show. Thanks to Dr. John Tully for joining us on today's show and offering his great advice on how to be a more responsible horse owner. And thank you for supporting the show. And if you'd like to support the show in a more meaningful way, you may go to our Patreon page. The link for that is at thewopodcast.com. Just click on that Patreon button. We would love to post pictures of you and your horse in our gallery of patrons. John has been doing well podcasts for five years now and has done a great job providing content and videos. Help us keep the Woe Podcast going by going to Patreon and supporting the show. You'll see that we're working on a few rewards and we're trying to develop the podcast. By the way, if you've got some ideas for the show that you'd like to share, please send them along. I love getting your emails. You can send them to john at woepodcast.com. The Woe Podcast can be found on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Google. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell her she really tweets a lot. I don't. (laughs) And and Google Play. You can subscribe to the show and then you would never miss an episode. There you go. And that's the easiest way to do it. Speaking of subscribing, if you want to stay up to date on all things Woe Podcast, you can sign up for our email newsletter. It's summertime, and I'm, we're spending a lot of time riding our horses, so be a little bit patient. I haven't really sent out too many emails, but then you're not bothered by them either, so <laughs> uh, keep that in mind. But if you do want to hear news about the Woe Podcast when it comes out, there's a, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> there's a link at woepodcast.com that you can sign up and get that free newsletter. Once again... Thanks for sharing this podcast with your friends, and thanks for continuing to support the show. Until next time, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody.